I want to thank you again tonight for being here. You know, we're down really to what amounts to a weekend meeting. And it's certainly good to see each one of you again. And I know that many of you have been here every service. And I appreciate that. And I know the congregation appreciates that as well. And uh, if you're a visitor here tonight, I hope you'll find what we have to say interesting and edifying. And I have to admit that what we're going to do tonight is a little bit different and really something that, while I'm not uncomfortable with it, it's not typically my style because I typically like to just take the text and stay right with the text. But tonight we're going to talk a little bit about church history. Now there's some disclaimers I want to give as we begin our study tonight and then Lord willing tomorrow night as well. The first of which is it's going to be impossible to cover every detail of church history from the time of Christ till now. 2,000 years or thereabouts has come and gone and obviously there are many rabbit trails, there are many events that are significant in church history that we cannot even begin to scratch the surface of tonight. Also, I want to say that when we talk about church history, I'm using the term church in a relatively accommodative sense. Because obviously, when we look at the scripture, we believe the church is the church that we read about in the Bible. And so when I use the word church tonight, I'm going to be using it at times in that way. But as history progresses, church history begins to be a history of those who fall away from the truth. And so maybe we might better say that we're going to study the history of Christendom tonight. That's not a lot better, but perhaps it's somewhat better because, uh, again, we're going to be looking at the various trends and movements that began, of course, with Jesus Christ himself. And then as we get on into the second, third, and on through the centuries, begin to go in various directions. The one point, again, that I want you to notice with me as we go through the study tonight and tomorrow night is that people often depart from God's way. The way of man is not within himself that walketh to direct his own steps. And so what we see over and over, not only in the Bible text, but also in historical texts, is that men often depart from God's way. And of course, what we want to do tonight is we want to look at church history. And we want to see where people began to go astray because, as it has often been said, those who do not study history are sometimes doomed to repeat it. And so tonight we're going to be going relatively quickly. The first segment or our first installment tonight is going to be based primarily upon the first century. We are going to try to cover up through about 316 AD when Constantine becomes emperor. But nonetheless, tomorrow night we'll get in more to the history of what happened in the world and also how that impacted faith in general. But I want to begin tonight and talk about church history. And here's some things we want to notice. Why do we need to study church history? Now, you know, typically when we think of the Bible, we don't think of, you know, the history that goes behind it. But, you know, even when we look at the scriptures themselves, there was a historical setting. They were real people who lived in real times and who had real problems and who had real cultural experiences. And so it enriches our knowledge of the Bible to know what happened in history, both in the Old and the New Testament. But beyond that, you know, tonight, as we sit here in this assembly, this assembly didn't just drop in from heaven. We all bring with ourselves some cultural baggage. We all bring with ourselves some even religious baggage. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you've come from another group, or but even if you have or haven't, the point is, is that religious trends through the world have influenced even the Lord's church. 
In fact, typically when we talk about the Lord's church in history, we talk about the restoration movement where we talk about Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and others. And we'll touch on that very briefly tomorrow evening, Lord willing. But, you know, all of us, of course, have different perspectives. We bring things to uh, the reading of God's word, and we need to just be aware that we might have biases. And it might be that we have, uh, you know, past family or past experiences that have brought us to this point and we need to make for sure that because men often depart from God's way, we need to constantly be going back to God's word, comparing what we believe, contrasting what we believe to the scriptures. Now tonight, part one, and I apologize again if you can't see the text, but I hope that our verbal discussion will be sufficient. But anyway, the point is, is tonight we're going to look at two basic periods. We're going to look at what I call the apostolic period that goes from about 30 AD when the church was established to about 100 AD when the last apostle John died. And then we will look later on tonight, Lord willing, from about 100 AD to about 300 AD as the church began to move away from apostolic teaching. And what we're going to see once again, and you're going to hear me say this over and over, is that the history of the church and the history of even God's people lends to the fact that men often depart from God's way. Now, the apostolic period basically covers the period between the cross and the end of the apostolic or the last apostle, the death of John. Jesus probably died on the cross somewhere around 30, 33 AD, depending on what chronology you use. And of course, on the day of Pentecost, the church was established. Some say 33, some say 30, but the point is really moot because indeed that early on after the cross, the church was established and as you have heard me quote before, Acts 2.42, they continued at that point onward steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Well, things again began to even go, shall we say, awry from the very beginning. False teachers began to creep in. And of course, the apostles were constantly writing first about Jewish false teachers and then later about Greek false teachers. And of course, by the time we get to the death of John the Baptist, or John, or rather the apostle, there had been many, many, many warnings that the apostles had given about how the church was going to slip away from the truth. And that's exactly what we find. That's exactly what we find as we enter into the second, third, on through the 15th centuries, even up to today. Many false ideas, many false religions, many false denominations have been created by man, which never were intended by God. Now, of course, I want to begin back with the preaching of John the Baptist and with Jesus himself, because you remember that John the Baptist came preparing the way for Jesus. John was that hairy uh, sort of man out in the wilderness with that, that, that goat or that uh, camel's hair garment that was uh, sort of the, the garment of a prophet. And he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, the reign of God was just be about to be inaugurated upon the scene. And as we noted the other day, when we think of the kingdom, we can think of it as the church, of course, because that's certainly an aspect of it. But the kingdom itself also deals with how God is sitting on the throne of our hearts. And John was calling a decadent culture, a decadent society, back to the very basic principles of the Old Testament and said, prepare your hearts because a new scene is about to occur and the kingdom, the reign of God that had been prophesied all the way back as far as Daniel and before was about to come to be. Well, of course, John preached and then, of course, Jesus preached as well. Jesus came preaching basically the same message that John preached. 
He said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. In fact, on one occasion in Mark 9, 1, Jesus said that there were some standing there that very day that would not taste of death till they saw the kingdom come with power. And of course, we know that the kingdom came. Pentecost brought the church. And the kingdom, of course, as we have noted in past studies briefly, contains four things. A king, a territory, subjects, and a law. The king is Jesus. The territory is our hearts, and Jesus wants to sit on the throne of our hearts. And, of course, he wants to have us, his people, as subjects. And, of course, the law is his word. You see, the kingdom, the church, is not a physical place. It is not a landmass. It is not a political entity. It is those who assemble together and through all time have given their hearts and minds to Jesus Christ. So Jesus promised to come. And he was going to build his church or his kingdom. The Greek word there is ekklesia, which literally means the called out. And we are called out, yes, to a central location to worship, but even more spiritually, we are called out of sin and we have been translated into the light of the glorious Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus promised in Matthew 16, verse 18, that he would build his church. It's his church. It's the church of Christ. It's not any man denominations. And, of course, that's the problem as we look at church history. Because man began to usurp the authority of Jesus. They began to place themselves on the throne. They began to view themselves as the head of the church. And Jesus will have none of that. And so we need to know tonight what the church of Jesus is really all about so that we can avoid perhaps falling into the same, the same pitfalls that those in church history have fallen into. Well, the church, of course, came, was born, if you will, on the day of Pentecost. You remember that Jesus had promised that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, that he was going to guide the apostles into all truth. And of course, Jesus there on the Mount of Olives ascends back to heaven and he commands his apostles to go and remain in Jerusalem till they are endued with power from on high. And in about 10 days, that's exactly what happened. On the day of Pentecost, they are there in one place and the Holy Spirit is poured out and God demonstrates very miraculously and powerfully that Jesus has taken the throne in the, on the right hand uh, of God. And so then the Holy Spirit was given. It was in Jerusalem, just as prophets such as Isaiah 2 had said. So now we have the church. It's established. So what happens? Well, the church, again, is a growing, vibrant institution. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 46, the early church was constantly spending time together. They were hearing the word taught. The apostles were preaching. People were coming into the church by baptism, and the Lord was adding to the church daily such as should be saved. That's an incredible thought. Because today, if we add to the church, or the Lord does, of course, but if we baptize someone yearly, we think, we do, we think we're doing a fairly good job. But here was a vibrant time in the early church. 3,000 had been baptized simply on the day of Pentecost alone. And then the church continued to grow. It continued to spread. And people began to, again, assemble and worship. And they, uh, I, I, I have no doubt, began to assemble in small congregations around the city of Jerusalem and began to do what the apostles taught them to do. Well, of course, Jesus had promised that his kingdom, the church, would spread. In fact, Jesus told the apostles in Acts chapter 1 that they were going to receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them. And then in verse 8, you find what we really might say is a small outline of the entire book of Acts. Because Jesus says there that they would be witnesses of him 
in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And that's exactly the outline of the book of Acts. You first of all, of course, have the apostles in Jerusalem. In Acts 8, you have, uh, you have Philip down in Samaria. And then, of course, the gospel begins to spread out into other places. And by the end of the book of Acts, you've got the apostle Paul making three marvelous uh, journeys throughout the Mediterranean world. And then the fourth journey to Rome. And the church literally meets the end of the earth. Well, the history of Acts is an exciting history. In fact, if you want to know the real biblical history of the church, read the book of Acts. Because in chapter 2, the, earth, the church is established. In chapter 4, Peter and John preach to the Jews. In chapter 5, the church begins to be persecuted. In chapter 7, Stephen, the first martyr, is killed for his faith. In chapter 8, Christians begin to flee Jerusalem because of the persecution, but they take the gospel with them. In chapter 9, the apostle Paul is converted. Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, is converted. And then in chapter 10, the Gentiles are converted through the household of Cornelius. And then in chapter 11, Antioch, way up there in Pisidia, begins to receive the gospel. And then, of course, Acts chapter 13, Paul begins to make his missionary journeys. And so if you want to know what the history of the church is, read the book of Acts, at least as it pertains to the first century. Now, you know, the way of the church was always a bloody way. In fact, it's very ironic to me that the church always spread the most in hard times. You know, today, and rightly so, we pray that God would give us the right and the ability and the country in which we live to worship in freedom. And we pray sometimes, you know, if there ever were laws enacted, give us the strength to stand. And, you know, really, I think in the back of our minds, or at least in my mind, I don't really think that will ever happen. Oh, I think it really will. But I really become, become logical about it because we're seeing a wholesale change in our culture tonight. But, you know, in my lifetime, I think, yeah, you know, it's never happened before. Maybe it won't happen but you know what? That's not necessarily a bad thing. Oh, it's bad for those who are persecuted. It might be bad for us. I wouldn't want to give my life for my faith necessarily. And I wouldn't want to necessarily, you know, be thrown in jail. But in the early centuries, those who were being persecuted, uh, you know, were standing for their faith. Others were seeing it. And the church was growing. In fact, when the early church was in Jerusalem, this is sort of interesting, I think. You know, the early church was in Jerusalem, having been founded on the day of Pentecost. And it almost seems like God has to sort of shake up the church. Because they're comfortable, they're enjoying the camaraderie. It's like a, you know, a big 4th of July meeting or a New Year's meeting. You just love the fellowship of those around you. And God kind of shakes them up. Those Jews begin to persecute the church. And it's not the apostles, by the way, who flee first. It's the normal, everyday, average Christian. But what do they do? Do they just flee for their lives? Well, yes and no. It says then that those that were scattered abroad went everywhere preaching the word. Now, the apostles finally do leave Jerusalem. But it's the persecuted saints, it's the common guys, it's us who then were going and preaching the gospel wherever they went. And the church was growing. You know, it's been said that the blood of martyrs, those who gave their lives as the ultimate witness, the blood of water, martyrs became the very thing that watered the seed of the word. You know, the seed of the word is sown in people's hearts. And, you know, sometimes we don't appreciate it because we have to give nothing for it. But these were folks who, when they became a Christian, they understood this could be their very lives. And so the church begins to spread. And, of course, Philip, you remember, goes down to the place called Samaria. And there he encounters, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the, the Simon the Sorcerer. 
And of course, many things occur, including baptism and uh, the apostles send down help and the Holy Spirit is given. There's a wonderful chapter in Acts 8 that tells us so much about the preaching of the word. It tells us so much about how the Holy Spirit is given. It even tells us so much about what the Holy Spirit is. And then the church spreads to Africa. Who would have thought that at this very early stage, the church goes to Africa? You know, this really resonates when we're in Africa because, of course, they love hearing things about their own culture. And we say, hey, do you know that one of the very first converts was an African? And they go, really? Yeah, Acts chapter 8. The Ethiopian nobleman was from Africa, from Ethiopia, had a great position in the government, had gone to Jerusalem. Apparently he was a proselyte, had some Jewish background. He had been worshiping, and he's on his way home when God taps Philip, and he says, uh, you need to go over there and preach to that guy. It's a desert place. It's not a very fun place, but you need to go and preach to him. And you remember that wonderful story. Philip goes. He joins himself to that chariot that that Ethiopian is in. He preaches to him Jesus. And in the process of that teaching, he teaches baptism because, you see, the Ethiopian says, See, here is water. What hindereth me from being baptized? And Philip said, If you believe, you may be baptized. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And so Philip and he went down into the water and he baptized him. And then the Ethiopian eunuch went away rejoicing. Tremendous story. He goes away rejoicing because he is now not a Jew. He is a Christian. And he's going to take the gospel down there to Ethiopia. And no doubt there were other Jewish folks down there too. No doubt there were other Ethiopians down there. It is Ethiopia after all. And he's going to teach them. And no doubt there was a church established. And so... The gospel is spreading, you see. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then to Africa and the uttermost parts of the world. Well, about this time, you have Saul of Tarsus. He's kind of a wicked man. Not wicked in the sense that he is a person against God's law, but he's wicked in the sense that he is persecuting Christians. He is one that is very zealous for his faith. He is one that was raised uh, with the best Jewish education. He was one who was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he would say uh, later on. And of course, you remember on that road to Damascus, he's headed up there to persecute uh, Christians in Damascus and bring them bound. He's got a letter of authority from the chief priest to bring them bound and to throw them into jail. And he's on that Damascus road, and what happens? A bright light. Jesus appears to him, and Jesus appears and says, basically, I've got a better job for you, Saul. And, of course, you remember that Saul, he is, he is scared to death. He, for three days and three nights, fasts. He goes into the city, and Ananias is sent to tell him what he needs to do to be saved. And Ananias says, arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins and call upon the name of the Lord. You see, when you call upon the name of the Lord, it's not just a verbal thing. It's obedience, and it's obedience in the waters of baptism. And Saul was baptized. He was baptized just like every other person was saved in the New Testament. Well, then later on, of course, we leave Saul there to sort of take care of his own needs. And then we come to Cornelius in the household of Cornelius. That's a great story, too, in Acts chapter 10. You remember when Peter, he's up there on the housetop there in Joppa, down by the seacoast. He's staying with one called Simon the Tanner. And, of course, the tanner was one who took these skins and processed them, which was a very no-no for a Jew. 
But nonetheless, he's up there on the housetop. He's, he's sleeping. He's hungry. It's about lunchtime. And this great sheet, this vision, he has this sheet is let down by the four corners, having all manner of beasts and unclean animals and all things. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter is shaken. He says, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is unclean. I don't do that. I'm a Jew. I eat kosher food. Well, this happens some three times. And what God is showing Peter is, listen, I'm about ready to put you on a mission and I'm going to send you to some unclean people, ceremonially speaking. And about that time, out of the gate, the messengers come. Peter is summoned. He goes to the household of Cornelius. And there, Cornelius has the gospel preached to him. And he's baptized too. Well, in Acts chapter 11, the disciples begin to flee. And they begin to spread. And the church spreads. And now up here in Antioch, way up here north of Jerusalem, the church is thriving. In fact, it's going to be from that point that Paul is later sent out, and it says the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. You see, by this time, the Christians were, again, formalizing their faith, and they were beginning to grow, and they were beginning to be evangelistic. They were beginning to understand their mission in the world. And by the way, the mission of Christianity is evangelism. It's not just to sit in a building and enjoy the comforts or hear good preaching. It is evangelism. You know, go into the world, and it is said that in the first century, each one won one. Everyone won one. And that's our job tonight. That's our job today, is to be like the early church. Well, Paul makes his missionary journeys, you remember that. And of course, most of the letters that we have in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, are letters, Thessalonians, that Paul wrote as he would go and establish a congregation and preach the word and people would be converted, but then they would have problems. You see, God's people are not without problems. The church is not without problems. People do often struggle and sometimes depart from God's way. And so Paul would write these letters back to them and he would reprimand them and encourage them and strengthen them. And of course they grew. And from those letters, we have the doctrines tonight that guide the church of Jesus Christ. We don't have creeds. We don't have man-made doctrines. We just go back to the words of these apostles. And so by the end of the first century, the gospel had spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. In fact, Paul said it this way in Colossians 1, verse 23. If you continue, he says, in the faith, grounded and settled, and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel, then get this, which you have heard and which was preached to every creature under heaven where I by Paul and made a minister. Now I think, of course, there's a little bit of rhetorical license here. But Paul is saying the gospel has had full course. It's had free course and it has gone far and wide. And now Christianity is well known. Well, it's a wonderful time. The church is spreading. There are persecutions. The Jews had been persecuting the church, but the church spread. And, and of course, it fled. And now things are going well, all in all. But, you know, there were some rough seas ahead. The ship of Christianity, the ship of old Zion, was going to be tossed and turned in the next several centuries, even maybe through the next 20 centuries. You know, the apostle had warned not only the churches, but also men like Timothy, the protege, when he said the Spirit speaks specifically, expressly, that some will depart in latter times from the faith. He warns over and over, the apostle warns over, I think he is concerned about the future strength of the church. 
And he says, there is going to be a falling away. No sooner than John was buried. In fact, even before that, did the very ugly head of division, false doctrine, and those pagan theories and theologies of the ancient world began to slip into the church. In fact, some believe, and probably rightly so, that the epistles of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, are written to ward off a Gnostic heresy. The idea that you have to have special enlightenment and that God's word isn't enough. Some believe that that was the beginning of Gnosticism that John already was beginning to ward off. Well, part two tonight, as we look at the rest of our little study, we're going to go from the end of the first century. The apostles now have died away. Spiritual gifts are beginning to cease, and we don't go into this in this study, but that's a very important part and component of the first century. Remember that the word of God was still being written. Paul was pinning the letters to various congregations. But in the meantime, God had given spiritual gifts, gifts of prophecy, gifts of tongues, gifts of interpretation of tongues, gifts of faith, gifts of healing to the early church so that they could confirm the word and know what to do doctrinally until the New Testament could be completed. Now, I believe that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13, when he speaks of the completed thing coming, he's speaking of the completed revelation of God's will. But nonetheless, after the first century, things began to get very difficult. No longer do you have an apostle that you can call over and say, uh, Paul, what, what, what now are we to do about this? Now, false teachers are circulating. Now, of course, it's dependent upon those in the congregations to go back to the word to go back to the writings, to go back to what they knew the apostles had taught. And we're going to see, again, a wholesale departure from the, from the truth. But let me talk to you just for a moment tonight about this persecution. You know, one of the problems with dealing with history is that there's so many movements that you would like to discuss that are sort of parallel movements. They occur at the same time. So it almost as if you're not being totally linear, you kind of have to keep jumping back. Well, I want to talk about this idea of persecution. Because, you know, persecution, as I mentioned, was that which spread the church initially. Acts 8, 4. They went everywhere preaching the word. And, of course, the first four centuries of the church were fraught with persecution. It was a bloody time in church history. And so as the church spread, and as it began to encounter first Judaism that didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and then later pagan philosophies, and began then to also take money out of the pockets of pagan temples, there began to be a spread of persecution as well. And I want to spend just a little bit of time, because I think it's a fascinating study, and it will lead us ultimately to our final destination tonight, which is Emperor Constantine, who finally makes Christianity legal and sort of ends persecution. And you say, well, that's a great thing. Well, maybe not. We'll see tomorrow night that that probably was one of the worst things that could have happened as far as the strength of the church. But, you know, Jesus had already begun to warn about persecution. In Matthew 5, verse 10, he said, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see, even in Jesus' day, it was nothing new to be persecuted. In fact, he convicts in Matthew 23 those Jews who had crucified or killed, rather, of the old prophets, everyone from A to Z, Abel to Zechariah. And he says, you know, godly people are going to be persecuted. The Old Testament bore that out and the new as well. And Paul in 2 Timothy 3, the last letter that Paul, probably Paul ever wrote. He's an old man, but yet he's about to die probably uh, by the sword, the Roman sword. 
And he writes to his young man, Timothy, who he has loved so long and is going to be carrying on the cross of the, of the gospel on after his death. And he says, all of those who live godly will suffer persecution. It's quite a promise. But Paul seems very emphatic about that. And then, of course, in Revelation 2, verse 10, that familiar verse, Revelation is this story or this, this, this book about right wrong, good, evil, and no matter how you interpret it, it all comes down to the fact that Christians get caught in the grinding wheel of the cultures in which we live, and we're going to be sometimes even killed. And of course, John, as he writes there, be faithful unto death, John says, or Jesus says, really, and I'll give you the crown of life. Well, during the apostles, period, during the first century, after the church in about 30, 33 AD was established, you have the persecution mainly by the Jewish leaders for theological reasons. Now that's important because you see those Jews looked at what the Christians were teaching about Jesus Christ the Messiah. They didn't believe that and so they persecuted Christians because they had left the law. They were no longer binding things like circumcision or the Sabbath. And so they viewed Christianity as being heretics from Judaism. And so there was a great amount of persecution. Now, you know, when we think about Israel and Palestine of that period of time, uh, we have to remember that in 63 BC, uh, Rome had come in and taken over the land of Palestine. Now, Rome was fairly tolerant of tribal religions. They were fairly tolerant of the religions of the nations that they conquered, as long as those nations did not rise up against Rome and or accepted the Roman gods. They didn't really care what you believed as long as you believed the emperor was God as well. Well, you know, Rome allowed a lot of these religions to slide by, including Judaism. Well, you see, at first, Christianity was sort of a subset of Judaism, wasn't it? It was a religion that was uh, acknowledged as just part of Judaism. Well, since Judaism had the rights of existence by Rome, they had said, okay, you're fine. Then Christianity was fine. But now something begins to happen as the Jewish nation begins to die. And of course, you remember that the Jewish nation revolts. And finally, in AD 70, the Jewish nation is obliterated by Titus and Vespasian. The city is destroyed. Uh, you know, many, many folks are killed, murdered uh, as the city is surrounded. In fact, that's what Matthew 24 is all about. It's about the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. Now, with the demise of Judaism, now Christianity that has already spread, taken on other doctrines, stands alone. And it stands out from that once Judaistic background. And so now they become the target for the Romans who now look at these Christians who refuse to acknowledge the emperor as God. Whereas once Christians sort of went under the umbrella of Judaism, now they stand alone. And so with the destruction of Jerusalem, now the persecution ramps up in full force, and now Christianity is going to be a target by the Jews, now, or by the Romans. Now, why would the Romans care? You know, Christians, this is one of the things that I think has always been interesting to me. You know, Christians arguably are the nicest, best people you could ever have in the empire. They're hardworking, if they're good Christians. They uh, take care of their families. They don't rely on the government. What more could you want? Well, the issue came down to three main things as to why the Romans didn't like the Christians. Number one was they didn't recognize the emperor as Lord. Now, why did the Romans want people to recognize the emperor as Lord 
or as God or as deity? Well, I think there are several reasons. Number one, the emperors were pretty narcissistic. They liked that. But nonetheless, if you can get a single political ruler in your, in your kingdom or in your, your empire, and remember Rome by this time has spread really far and wide, if you can get uh, a single entity that everyone looks to and holds, it's a cohesion factor. It holds people together. And so here's these Christians who are saying, Caesar's not Lord. He's not Lord. There's only one Lord. One faith, one baptism. Remember Hebrew, uh, uh, you know, Ephesians 4? So they were criticized and persecuted because they refused to offer incense and bow to the emperor. But, you know, also they were accused of being immoral. Now you say, how in the world could Christians be immoral? We, we live by the highest standards of ethics ever put upon this world. Well, they were accused of, accused of many things. Most of it, scholars say, came about from misunderstanding. For example, the example, Christians were, uh, they were accused of being cannibals. They ate flesh. You say, wow, how'd that happen? Well, think about the Lord's table. We say that we're eating the body of Jesus, not literally. Now, some religions do say literally, but that was misconstrued. We call each other brother and sister in Christ. Do we believe in incest? No. You see, a secular mind looks at religious truths and misunderstands. And then economics. Now, you want to get somebody against your case, get in their wallet. And, of course, you remember, for example, in Acts chapter 16, where Paul there comes to Ephesus. Remember that story we talked about? Uh, Philippi, Philippi, rather. And, of course, those, those pagan temples were suffering because the preaching of the gospel was taking converts away from paganism and making them Christians. And so the economics of, you know, supporting those temples was dying away. So many things that, when you put it all together, led to a persecution of the Christians. Now, there had always been some persecution. In fact, a lot, really. In Paul's day, the emperor was Nero. Nero was an evil man. In fact, he is known to, first of all, have uh, blamed the burning of Rome upon Christians. Second of all, he is also known to take Christians and literally tie them to stakes and burn them alive as torches for his garden parties. These men were demented. They were depraved. And, of course, a terrible bloodshed. Domitian, who came later in 95, confiscated church properties, confiscated Christians, murdered Christians, was probably the one that exiled John the, uh, uh, John the Apostle, rather. And then Decius, who I'll talk more about in just a second very briefly, he wanted to wipe Christianity. He, had, he took it personally. He wanted to wipe Christianity out. And then finally Diocletian. Now there were others who persecuted the church, but these are four that are very prominent. And by the way, Diocletian, and we don't have time to talk about it in this meeting. I wish we did on how we got the Bible. But you know, one of the questions that's asked is why don't we have more of the original manuscripts like back to the second, third century? Probably because of Diocletian. He burned every book he could get his hands on that dealt with Christianity, including the copies of the Bible. He made them very scarce. But what about this Decius fellow? Decius was evil. He was evil incarnate. He wanted to destroy every vestige of Christianity. And he wanted to wipe every Christian out. And if you were a bishop or a church leader, you were dead. No mercy on you. Now, if others that were Christians would recant, if they would bow the knee, if they would give a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, he'd let you off. He'd sign a little, a little certificate. Well, of course, many did recant. Many did give up their faith, but many did not. 
So there was a terrible bloodshed during this period of time, great difficulty for the church as it began to go through terrible persecution. Now again, we don't have time to apply this tonight, but think about your life. Think about my life and think about would you be willing to deny Jesus just so you could live? I mean, after all, this is a pagan empire. This is a pagan emperor. Wouldn't hurt just to offer a pinch of incense. I mean, who's going to know the best? Uh, the difference, you're under duress anyway. That doesn't count. It did to the Christians. They took it very seriously. They were willing to go to death. Well, there were a lot of martyrs. We're almost nearing the end, so bear with me. There were a lot of martyrs, and I think, again, this phrase, the blood of the saints has watered the seed of the kingdom. is so applicable and pertinent to this period. And the martyrdom of Christians begins all the way back with Stephen. In Acts 7, the Jews stoned him, and, you know, he had gotten on their case and preached about their stiff-necked attitudes, and they had stoned him. James, later in Acts 12, is killed. Paul, in first, uh, 2 Timothy 4, 6, indicates that he's about ready to die. And so even in the New Testament itself, you have various martyrs. Well, Polycarp comes along, and he's a very historical figure that many of you recognize, but he was a bishop or a leader of the Church of Smyrna. And they bring him up and ask him to offer the pinch of incense. He refuses. And his famous words, supposedly, uh, you know, I think quoted by Asubius, is that he says, 80 and 6 years I have served him, that is Christ. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? Bring forth what thou wilt. And so he dies then for his faith. Well, persecution and martyrdom may seem like a terrible thing. But certainly it separates the wheat from the chaff. It separates those who are truly dedicated, those who are really serious about their faith. One of the reasons, no doubt, today in the religious world, we have people who are so, including maybe ourselves, so lackadaisical about their faith is because our faith has never been tried. Well, Christianity eventually comes to the point where they're not persecuted anymore. But let's talk about that just for a moment and then we'll close. You know, Christianity has gone through a bloody three centuries. It's been tough. Now, in the meantime, false doctrines have also been creeping in. We'll deal with that tomorrow night. But it's been a tough time. The church has taken a beating physically and also theologically during this period of time. But all of a sudden, the tide begins to change. There's this man by the name of Constantine, Constantine the Great. He comes to power in about 306 AD, fourth century. So he comes to power, and now he's not a Christian, by the way. He's never been baptized. In fact, he wasn't even baptized until his deathbed. But supposedly, he's a military guy, and he begins to see, this is my summation of it, he begins to see the persecution of the Christians. He realizes how strong they are, and he thinks, that's a good attitude. That's a good uh, people to have on my side. And so at a battle of the Milvion Bridge, he supposedly has this vision and sees this sign of the cross in the sky, and he sees this letter or gets this message. Uh, in Latin, it is, it is something. And in, in English, it means in this sign, conquer. And so at that moment, he basically takes upon Christianity. And really, it's that moment when papal Rome begins, really, if you want to be technical about it. And he changes the eagle as the uh, hallmark for his army to the cross. And so Constantine then goes forth and he begins to make Christianity legal. Now, there was an edict called the Edict of Milan in 313 A.D. 
The Edict of Mandan was really kind of the uh, focal point of now Christianity is no longer a persecuted religion. It didn't mean that Constantine really just became you know, overly involved with Christianity necessarily at that point, but he gives toleration to Christians. Now Christians join the ranks of every other allowed religion in the Roman Empire. And he sets the stage, really, for some of the most political movements that ever wove their way into Christendom. Because as we'll see, Constantine not only made the Edict of Milan making Christianity legal, but just a few years later, when there was a problem over who is Jesus, the deity of Christ, he sets himself up and says, I'm going to preside over this great council called the Council of Nicaea, and I'm going to make the decisions here with you guys who are religious leaders. Now, of course, by this time, the church had begun to fall away. So we don't look to these leaders as being men of God necessarily, but the point is this: he brings the political aspect full and center into the church. And from this point on, you begin to have creeds that begin to slip into church history. You begin to have ecumenical councils. There were many, but there were at least seven ecumenical councils where people from all over the world, religious leaders in the churches, would come and powwow politically. You see, it begins to leave the grassroots effort of the first century begins to leave the truth of the gospel and the writings of the apostles. And now it's about creeds. Now it's about man-made ideas. Now it's about man-made ideals. And of course, that's going to lead them ultimately to a lot of trouble for the church. Well, one more point and then we're finished. You know, now Christians are being persecuted. You know, I think there was a thing or a part about Christianity being persecuted that I won't say people liked it. Christians never liked being persecuted, but it gave you something tangible to say, I am doing this for my faith. But now all of a sudden, you're not persecuted. It's an easy life. So what are you going to do? Monasticism begins to rise. And that's an interesting study in and of itself. But monks and nuns and, you know, uh, convents and all of these organizations that come out of this period of time on through, of course, even the Middle Ages, the rise of extreme asceticism. And I want to leave you with one kind of fun ascetic. There were some of these guys, if you read some of these writings, and, and they literally were just almost nuts. I mean, they would go out and live by themselves in the desert. They would talk to themselves. They would joust with the devil out when the devil wasn't even there. I mean, they were mystics. And people then began to join them, and this began to be a growing movement because now, how do I demonstrate my faith? Well, they should have demonstrated it by just living and telling others about Jesus, but that wasn't good enough. So they began to build massive cathedrals. They began to develop organizations. They began to do some really crazy things. Well, there was this man called Simeon of Stalites, and he lived in about 400 A.D. Now, this man lived on a pillar. He erected a pillar, and this was not just indicative of him. This type of thing happened in other church uh, history and by other individuals. But he was a monk, and he took up at the age of 33 residence on a platform that was 60 feet tall. Well, first of all, I don't like heights. That's enough to do me in. But second of all, he never bathed. The weather pelted him. His flesh became so filthy that the worms began to infect his skin. He would not kill them. They would fall off on the ground and his followers who awed him would be just falling all over themselves to have what fell from his tower. He took no care of his body. 
And again, he constantly cut himself, self-asceticism, and he allowed the bugs to feed off of these wounds. Now, why did he do that? Somewhere in his mind, he thought he was doing it for the Lord. You know, the apostle had said that self-imposed religion is not accepted by God. This man and many, many, many others took vows of silence, took vows of hunger, took vows of poverty, took all kinds of vows, put themselves in terrible conditions just so they could feel religious and faithful. Well, before we get critical about that, which is certainly crazy, but there are still religions, maybe even we do it a little bit today, even ourselves, you know, kind of that uh, idea if we can just, you know, crucify ourselves physically and just a little more, we're more righteous. That's really self-righteousness, by the way. This is nothing but a picture of self-righteousness. But nonetheless, you see then what is beginning to develop. The church has left that simple view of Christ and the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And now they've gone political. Now they've gotten the government involved. And by the way, anytime you get the government involved, you've got a mess. And that's exactly what's going to happen. Well, tomorrow night we'll talk a little bit about what happens after the centuries. As the centuries go on, uh, we'll discuss a little bit about the Reformation period. Martin Luther sees a, uh, a great departure, of course, in the church at the time, which was the Catholic church. And he... Remember, he wants to reform things. We'll talk a little bit about that and then perhaps close out with just a word, a small word, about reformation, restoration, and where do we go from here. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by The Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.